0: Well, good to see Kyle and Katie with us, and good to have everybody here, good to have everybody here. First Samuel chapter 11, and here in First Samuel, we have seen that Saul was anointed as king. There was a private anointing with Samuel, and then he is proclaimed king before all the people, all the people uh, realize that he Uh, is king. Remember though that while valiant men had their heart touched by him, the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that there were worthless men who asked, how can this one deliver us? And with that note chapter 10 ended and we're going to see here what Saul does as king. I have often said that 1 Samuel 11 is Saul's greatest success as king. His greatest success. In a lot of ways, it is his only success. Uh, very clear, as much as very clear success is, it is his only one. But there are many commendable traits of Saul revealed in this chapter. If he had stayed this way, his story would have been much different. Would have been much different. Now um, loudly, Isaiah will you read First Samuel chapter 11 for us?
1: And Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a pact with us and we shall be subject to you." And Nahash the Ammonite said to them, This is how I shall make a pact with you, with the gouging out of your right eye of every one of you, and I will make it a disgrace for all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel, and if there is none to deliver us, we shall come out to you. And the messengers came from to from Saul and spoke, to the, spoke the words in the hearing of the people. And all the people raised their voices and wept. And look, Saul was coming in behind the oxen from the field. And Saul said, What is the matter with the people that they are weeping? And they recounted to them the words of the men of Jabez. And the Spirit of God seized Saul when he heard these words, and he was greatly incensed. And he took a yoke of oxen and hacked them to pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, thus will be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. And Saul marshaled them at Bazak, and there were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men of Judah. And he said to the 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 messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow deliverance will be yours as the sun grows hot. And the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, and they rejoiced. And the men of Jabesh said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we shall come out to you, and you may do to us whatever is good in your eyes. And it happened on that day that Saul sent the troops in three columns, and they came into the camp in the morning watch, and struck down Ammon till the heat of the day. And so those who remained were scattered, and not two of them remained together. And the people said to Saul, Whoever said, Saul shall not be king over us, give us these men, and we shall put them to death. And Saul said, No man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has wrought deliverance in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and we shall renew there the kingship. And all the people went to Gilgal. And they made Saul king before the Lord at Gilgal. And they sacrificed their communion sacrifices before the Lord. And Saul rejoiced there. And all the men of Israel with him very greatly.
0: Okay, okay. The Ammonites. The Ammonites. What do you remember about their history? The Ammonites were descendants of whom? Lot. Lot, Genesis 19. The Ammonites and Moabites were descendants of Lot. And this king is Nahash the Ammonite. Nahash the Ammonite. His name will be mentioned in chapter 12, verse 12. We may well get there in just a moment. But the Bible says that the men of Jabesh said, Make a covenant with us. And he said, I will make a covenant with you on the condition that I can pluck out your right eye." It's often been stated, and Josephus stated as what he thought was the reason, is because if most men were right-handed warriors, uh, they would have held their shield up and and blocked their um, left eye. And if their right eye was gouged out, they are unable to see and unable to fight as warriors. Now, did any of you have a translation... In verse 1, that, that makes this kind of practice of Nahash, of plucking out the right eyes of people, a kind of general practice. Any of you have that in your translation? There were a couple of Hebrew manuscripts that were found. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they found part of 1 Samuel and part of the text of 1 Samuel and it had something that was not in our previous text until that Hebrew manuscript uh, that I mentioned earlier was found and that is that Nahash has a general practice plucked out the right eyes of people in the Transjordan region and made a covenant with them. So, it may have been a general practice and now that he comes around to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and it is their time for this lot. Now I'm going to tell you the most amazing thing about Nahab's manner. He was friends with David in 2 Samuel 10. When he dies, David sends a puberty to offer condolences and they are not treated well if you remember that story they are not treated well but he sends these messengers and what happens there and you might wonder well how did david how did david become a friend with david which, which is a good question a good question why would they be just a guess, but you know, Saul you know, defeated them, and Saul and David weren't exactly on good terms a lot <laughs> of the time. Exactly. But, there is a phrase that's been used a lot in life, it's used sometimes in politics. And I think we can see last week when we went over with the Romans and Pharisees that some of applies to religion, but that the enemy of my enemy. Is my friend, and in this particular case, they had a common enemy in Saul, and because they had a common enemy in Saul, that draws them together. But but think about the text here, Jabesh Gilead. I want you to be thinking about that name, thinking about what you know about the city, and uh, they're going to Nahash is going to pluck out their right eye to make it a reproach for all Israel. And he said, and and he even gives them, he is so confident that they will have no one to deliver them, he gives them seven days. Send messengers throughout all the land of Israel and uh, see if there's anyone to deliver you. And certainly he thinks that no deliverance is coming and he thinks this is going to only add to the reproach. But the Bible tells us that this word came to Saul in Gibeah in verse 14. When it came to Saul, and it came to the city of Gibeah, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They lifted up their voices and wept. Saul as of yet, as of right now in verse 4, doesn't know what has happened. He comes in from the field. He sees the people weeping. He has been working behind the oxen. And he says, what is it that you're weeping about? And they tell him that the men of Jabezileum had sent us deliverance. Because Nahash the Ammonite is going to pluck out the right eye of all of them if deliverance doesn't come within seven days. And the Bible tells tells us the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul mightily. And he took his sword and he cut his oxen in two. And he sent them throughout all Israel. And he says this is what will happen to the oxen of everyone who doesn't follow Saul and who doesn't follow Samuel. Now, where, where have we heard of Jabez Gilead. Before, where have we heard of that? Now I know those of you that were the judges uh, know that. I saw both David and Sarah raise their hand. I got a feeling here. Whoever gets the microphone first is going to get the right answer. But Jabez Gilead, where is where is that, David? Uh, Judges 21. Okay, Jabez Gilead is in Judges 21. Okay? Okay, before we pursue that just a little bit, there's also another place mentioned here, Gibeah. Can you remember anything that happened in Gibeah? Sarah, you want to take that turn? I know you didn't raise your hand. I am just making up for the fact that David got your right answer there before. Where is Gibeah? And what? Where have we seen that city? I was going to say that's Judges they gathered to have going to battle. Yeah, Judges nineteen and twenty. You have the the um, rape of the concubine. Remember the concubine was raped at Gibeah. Then the Bible tells us Saul. Cuts the oxen into pieces. Ever remember anything like that, Andrew? You're shaking your head excitedly. Um, I took you to society. What do you remember about? I think you get know over that. Let you, And uh, but but what um, what do you remember? Okay, cutting the concubine into pieces in Judges 19 as well, and sitting here throughout all Israel. So, So what I'm saying, these are three key points of connection with that same event. That is all one story, Judges 19 through Judges 21. Now to review that story, and I know some of you don't need this review because we just went over this in, in Judges' place. But particularly for those of you who were not in Judges, what happens there is a Levite with his servant and his concubine, they are traveling back. They will not stay in Jerusalem because it is a foreign city. He says, let's get to an Israelite city. And so they determine they will stay at Gibeah. When they stay at Gibeah, all the men of the city surround the house at night and they beat on the door of the man who had taken in the Levite, his concubine and his servant. And they say in this text, They say, bring the men out that we may have sexual relations with them. And he said, Don't do this with kids. Don't do this with kids. I have a a newborn, I have a a virgin daughter who's never been with a man, and he has a concubine. Do with him whatever you want, but but do not do so with these men. Should he have said that? Absolutely not. Now, I'm not saying it's the right thing. Again, it happened. I don't think it's the right thing to happen. But what happened after she is raped all night long and killed, she is cut into pieces and sent throughout all the land of Israel. The only city that doesn't come to battle to deliver Israel The fight against Benjamin is the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And because Jabesh-Gilead didn't come to the battle and didn't fight in the conflict, because of that, because of that, the text tells us there in in Judges um, 21 that all their men were killed and all the women who had ever been with men. Jabesh-Gilead had not come to the aid of all Israel. Why were they going to expect in this case that Israel would come to their aid? But but what happened is there were 400 men, 400 women in Jabez Gilead who had not been with a man, who were virgins. They gave those 400 to the 600 men who left from the tribe of Benjamin, and then they found the other wives another way. What are you trying to say? Saul may well have been a descendant of this union between the people of Benjamin and the people of Jabez Gilead. But but this story is, is constantly bringing to mind that story. But this story is going to have a more powerful outcome. After Saul cut up those oxen and sent them throughout, the Bible says the dread of the people Fell upon him. When the dread of the people fell upon him, they gathered for battle in verse 8, 300,000 of Israel and 30,000 of Judah. And Saul sends a message to them in verse 9. He says, Tomorrow by this time, you're going to have deliverance. You're going to have deliverance. And Saul divides his army into three companies. And early in the morning, they attack the Ammonites. They defeat them so thoroughly, verse 11 says, that no two of them were left together. Okay? Now, before we see Israel's response, let me ask you, any questions, any ideas there on verses 1 through 11? i answered all your questions before. Is those for you. Okay, now, not not all. We got, we got one question here. Well, I'm just thinking about that. When boy, uh, Robert's got your microphone. Okay, thank you. I'm just thinking about that verse 7. Now, in the Yes, you're exactly right. It is the fear of the Lord. And here one man acts valiantly and courageously, and this inspires the people. The Bible says the very good, Ron, did you have a question? Or okay. I thought I saw a hand there. But anyway, verse verse twelve. Saul in the Gallup poll was about at 98%. That's not 100%. And he is, he is popular after he has won his victory over Nahash the Ammonite. And they say, who are those people who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them out that they may be put to death. That's verse 12. Bring them out that they may be put to death. Saul says verse 13 not a man shall be put to death this day for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel by the way the word deliver or deliverance was used in verse 11 as a verb there's no one to deliver us in verse 9, it's used as a noun, you shall have deliverance. In verse 13 as a noun, you shall have deliverance. Each time the root word is, is deliverance or saving that is the root of Joshua's name that is the root of Jesus' name. In a very real way, every victory foreshadows His victory. And, but the Lord has accomplished deliverance today in Israel. The Lord is, so he is not taking the credit. Saul is not focusing eyes on himself. But at this moment of greatest success... He is gracious to those who originally opposed his reign. And he is emphasizing that the Lord is behind every deliverance. Samuel said, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the the covenant. What do you remember about Gilgal? What do you remember about that place? It's the first place they encamped. When they crossed over, first place they encamp. When they crossed over, you know, I draw sometimes this kind of map of the Holy Land. I guess I have assumed a lot here. Uh, this is the Jordan River. This is J.S. Julian was in this area, and um, they go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. If, if there are any of you. Any of you that have not been to the Holy Land, you don't need to go now. I mean, that map is so graphic, so vivid that it seems like you're right there, standing, standing in its midst. But Gilgal, the text tells us, is where they renew the kingdom. Now, they first count there in Joshua four. One of the things that's interesting is there the men of Israel were circumcised. The men of Israel were circumcised because they were circumcised and the Bible says in Joshua 5, it rolled away the reproach from Israel. Kind of like this chapter, doesn't it? But they go to Gilgal, they renew the kingdom And it says that all the people went there. They offered sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And there, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What would be the significance of offering peace offerings here? Anybody, David? me. Ah. By defeating uh, the Ammonites, it brought peace to the flames. Okay. That would be my technique. All, all what you're saying is true. It's a, it's a, uh, that's, that's a reason you're saying to give you Okay. And, and
1: also,
0: Okay, it does. It brings dealing together. And peace offering, and all, of the, all of what y'all said ties to the point I was speaking. It, what y'all said made it the of fundamental things, because it was the purpose. But, but the peace offering was also the purpose. You ain't abortion of peace offering. So this would be a time they celebrate the victory. They share this common kind of meal. But overall, in a the big picture of things, they're giving thanks, as David said, and then as um, uh, also they are reconciled to uh, each other, as Sarah said. Okay? Any other thoughts? Craig? Uh,
1: so. It's striking the how far Saul falls here. Um, later on in chapter 14 and verse 45 he is so willing, uh, he makes a rash battle shoot until he finishes this battle, and it's time that Jonathan actually comes to the yes. and he is prepared to kill him. Yeah. And the people actually rise up and say almost verbatim
0: what Saul says here in verse 13. The people say, Jonathan is not going to die. He, today, the Lord has worked salvation Exactly. And so, just a couple chapters later,
1: he's he's already so blinded by his own ambition and his own uh, pride that
0: he he so quickly removes from this this godly spirit. Yeah, very important. First Samuel fourteen, about verses thirty-nine and forty-five. That uh, great, great, that was important great But he also later will kill people that aren't even his own. The priest says, "No, he pursued him. They do not do anything. They can't remember no, what you're talking about. He kills him anyway, and he's trying to kill David. Though twice, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. The Lord is going to deliver. The Lord delivered this day Israel and Saul and Jabez Gilead." And he's going to deliver David from Saul. I wanted to read you this that Brent Kirchival, out here in South Florida, and a, a good teacher said about this. Salvation comes to Israel. This is a summary of 1 uh, Samuel 11. Salvation comes to Israel, not because Israel had a king, but because the king had the Spirit of the Lord upon him this is the king we need we need a king who will successfully renew the kingdom of god and give victory to the fearful because he has the spirit of the lord upon him therefore when jesus declares the spirit of the lord is upon thee as he prophesies in isaiah 61 we need to see what this means jesus is declaring that he is the king Who will renew God's kingdom and give victory to the fearful because he has the Spirit of the Lord on him? This is what Jesus said in Luke 4. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19 that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. Okay. Any thoughts there? David?
1: Verse 12, when, you know, they say, who is that? said shall
0: Saul reign over us." you think that's a reference to the worthless fellows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and it would sure be easy, you know, if you're king right now, riding this wave of popularity. Yeah. And the thing is, like we say, later he's going to do it for, for, for much less. But here, he, 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 he does the right thing. He gives the Lord. In 1 Samuel 12, in the first five verses, Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you have said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am, Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? And from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand." And they said, uh, excuse me, from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day. That you found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Sometimes this is called Samuel's farewell address. I don't think that's necessarily a terrible title. But Samuel's still on the scene till 1 Samuel chapter 25. His position of leadership, though, is changing. He is a prophet who speaks to Saul, and Saul is now the king and the leader of the people. Saul, Samuel has been both a prophet and a judge, and uh, the Bible tells us here, he says, listen, I'm old, I'm gray-headed, um, my sons are with you. Remember, his sons had taken brides." they say in verse, in verse 3. He says, here are my sons, but he says, "Have I taken a bride from any of you?" And they all declare, "No, no, you have not done that." And they, he says, "God is witness, and this king is a witness." But but look back in verse in verse three. We might minimize, "I haven't taken your ox, I haven't taken your donkey." We might minimize that, but that was a precious possession. To these agricultural people. And Samuel is saying that I have not taken advantage of my position in any shape, form, or fashion to enrich myself. I have not taken your ox. I have not taken your donkey. Whom have I defrauded? Now, that is Samuel's defense. Why are the words that he said there so incredibly? Striking. Why are they so striking? Isaiah? Okay, in 1 Samuel 8, beginning with verse 11 through about verse 18, he emphasized this king is going to take your donkeys. He's going to take your oxen. He's going to take the best of your sons. He's going to take the best of your daughters. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. That's what they have asked for. They said, nevertheless, give us a king. Samuel is contrasting who he has been with what their king will be. That king will do nothing but take. But he hasn't taken their ox, their donkey. He hasn't cheated them. He hasn't defrauded them. Though his sons had taken bribes, he had not taken bribes. To blind their eyes. And he said, The Lord is a witness. Now, in verses 6 through 15, 6 through 15, we'll probably just read through 11 right here first. Well, let's read through verse 13. But I want to see, I want to ask you, do you see a pattern here? In verse 6, Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God who sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken. The Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Asheroth, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam and Beden, maybe Barak, uh, maybe even Abdon, but he sent Jeroboam, Beden, and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. When you saw that Nahash The king of the sons of Ammon came against you. You said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. God brought you out of Egypt. Verse 6. That Egypt was exhibited a. Of God's love and God's care for the people, He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He said, "I'm about to tell you about the Lord's righteous acts." Now, did you notice a pattern in some of the things that are said here in uh, Judges, or excuse or Samuel, chapter twelve? Did you notice? A pattern, things that keep recurring. Uh, Sarah. Okay, they cried to the Lord, and what does the Lord do? The Lord sent a deliverer. So, a couple of things: they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent a deliverer. They cried to the Lord, the Lord sent a deliverer. Now, come back to that in just a moment. I want us to see this. I want us to see that you see the whole cycle that is repeated some seven times in the book of Judges. You see it in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 12 verses 9 and 10. The people forgot the Lord their God. Verse 9. verse 9. They forgot the Lord their God. In verse 10 it is specified what they had done. They had forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So first of all you see in that passage that the people sinned against the Lord. They forsook the Lord, they served the Baals. Look at verse 9 again. The second stage that we see in the cycle of the book of Judges. The Lord gave them into the hand of their enemy. First they forgot the Lord, they served other gods, then God gives them into the hand of their enemies. And some of their enemies are specified. Sisera, the Philistines, the king of Moab, Eglon in Judges 3. God gave them into the hand of the enemy. But in verse 10, they cried to the Lord, and they acknowledged their sin here, as they did in Judges 10. They acknowledged their sin, and he says, now deliver us from the hand of our enemies. In verse 11, the Lord raises up deliverers from them. Jeroboam, Barak, and Jephthah. By the way, if you wonder... Do, do, do all of your translations have beaten there in verse eleven. Some of your tra- some of your shaking it. How many of you have bar- Barak? Okay. Now you want to know why manuscripts may differ here and why translations differ. Okay, tell me which of those is Bayrack and which is B. The top
1: one is Bay Rack.
0: You're right. <laughs> you are right. Now, what's the difference? This has kind of a curve. This comes to a point. This has a longer line. The K has a longer line, the final. Top as a final, a longer line than the final noon. But can you see how there could be a difference? If you are translating and you've been working all day, and you're anxious to get home to to your wife, Mrs. Translator or Mrs. Manuscript or whatever, uh, then can you see how you could make? A a, a mistake like that. And so some of your translations have Barak, some have Beden. But what you see in verse 8 and verse 10 is that the people cried out to the Lord. And then the Lord sent a deliverer, and that's stated in verse 8 and verse 11. Verse 8 talks about what happened in Egypt. They cried to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. Verse 10 talks about what happens in the days of Judges. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent a deliverer. That is the pattern of their history. But now the people, the people break the pattern. In verse 12, when they see Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, coming might have been already a threat on the horizon when Saul is anointed but they see Nahash the son of the king of Ammon coming and what, do they, what should they have done? Cry to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer but instead what they do is they shout no we want a king to rule over us The people break, serve here. They don't follow the pattern of crying out in time of crisis. And God delivered. But you know what's amazing about that? You understand, God's grace is on every page of Scripture. But you also see His judgment of the people when they wrong, And that too, He's on every page. And we cannot set one against the other. Here is the one you've asked for. In verse 14, If you fear the Lord and serve Him, serve the Lord, and listen to His voice... And do not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you do not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it is against your fathers. So what, what are you saying here? You've done wrong in doing this. You've done wrong in asking for a king. But, he says, if you fear the Lord, you serve Him, you listen to what the Lord said, you follow the Lord, you, you, uh, you and your king will be blessed. But if you don't listen to the king, the hand of the Lord will be against you. If you don't listen to the Lord, your king is not going to be able to fight your enemies or be victorious over your foes. It's not going to happen if you don't listen to Him. And need we say how frequently that theme of listening to God and doing what he says is found in scripture. Samuel says in verse... 16 Even now, take your stand and see the great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great in what you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent. Thunder that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord. Uh, look at those verses again. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. The Bible tells us I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder. In verse Eighteen. He called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder. Hmm. Sounds a lot like that, doesn't it? It uses different Hebrew words, but it's the same idea. He calls the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder. Now, you say, big deal? We had a storm. If that this wheat harvest is around early June, we had a storm the other night. Yeah. Oh.